um, much of you, hi Sarah, <laughs> many of us who are a little older, I turned 51 last week, um, woohoo, um, growing up before the advent of cell phones and uh, with mapping capabilities and series oh so smooth, smooth uh, silky voice, whatever, I have her as a British, um, British accent, I like that, um, we have childhood memories of our father at the wheel of the car driving in some new city and uh, obviously lost, but he is too prideful to recognize or admit it. And he's driving around and mom's asking over and over again for him to stop and ask for directions someplace, but he won't. It's frustrating. He doesn't want to swallow his pride and do that. And the end of the story always is that uh, either he eventually gives up and uh, we go home since we've inevitably missed the event that we were going to find or whatever, or, or dad throws up his hands with a smile and some laughter and says, okay, dear, you win, I'm lost. And then he goes and asks verbal directions, or if you remember, he goes to a gas station and buys a map, right? The gas stations used to hold map, and in parts of, the, of America where cell phone reach doesn't, you know, get, get out there, they still have maps at gas stations, it's amazing. But um, anyway, um, I remember those times, and... Uh, and it, it's happened to any of us who've probably maybe 40 years older or o- older. So um, last week we said that our inherent sinful condition in life doesn't make us valueless and it doesn't make us insignificant in God's eyes. Rather, it just makes us lost. And I don't want to downplay, I don't want to say lost is so, oh, just lost. I mean, it is, in a sense, it's a tragic loss. We are spiritually dead lost, you know. Um, we are, and we said in that that we are deserving of death in this condition, but we are worthy of God's grace at the same time due to being created in His image. That we are special to God, and He, he loves us and He cares for us, right? And when we look at the creation account in Genesis, we understand how this all began when Adam and Eve believed a lie. And this is something that we go over every once in a while here at 6 8 because it's important to remember. In Genesis 3 1 through 5, uh, Satan, who is imaged by a serpent in this passage, begins to say to Eve, and here, here's how he starts. Listen to this. Did God really say, right? I mean, you know you're getting duped when a, like a salesman says, did God really say? Like, did they really say? You know, it, you must not eat of any tree in the garden. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die, right? So he starts out kind of duping her, like, did God really say? And then you can't eat from any tree, like he overdoes it, right? And then she says, no, we can eat from any tree, but we just can't eat from this one. And uh, then where am I? He, sa- and he says, you, you, you will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And all good lies we know are partially true, right? They all have a little bit of truth mixed in with them so that we can swallow them much easier, you know? And as that was Satan's sort of goal there, I think. And, and their eyes were opened. There was something that did happen to them when they ate that fruit, but it wasn't good for them. It actually cost them their spiritual lives, in a sense, in relationship to God. And the lie was that God was holding out on them. That God's holding out on you, that He's duping you, that He's lying to you, that, uh, 
that you could be like him, that you could have his mind, that you could have his thoughts without having to submit to him, without having to come underneath him, right? And so they bit into the apple and they sealed and they confirmed our inherent sinful state, our inherent sinful nature, since Adam is representative of all humankind, right? And so what happened? Adam blames Eve, (laughs) right? You always blame your wife, right? Adam blames Eve and then Eve blamed the serpent, Right? We pass the buck all the time. But God holds them both responsible for their choice. He holds them responsible for their choice. And as a result, we heard the psalmist say and, and acknowledge this truth last week in Psalm 51 where he said, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. So what we see that it is that Scripture teaches that we've inherited the disease, so to speak. What Adam and Eve did was to put themselves in place of God, to put themselves on the throne of their own lives, to decide for themselves how they should live. And humankind has been doing that ever since, and it doesn't work, and it isn't working. Just watch the news. It's not working, right? In their decision to disobey and not follow God, they stopped the proverbial car of life, right? And they left God by the roadside, and they put themselves in the driver's seat without a road map. And now, humankind just sort of drives around aimlessly around with not even knowing our destination. We don't even know where we're going anymore. We can't even decide on where we're going. Friedrich Nietzsche, and I use this stuff every once in a while because I really think it's important and it's good to, to, to listen to, but Friedrich Nietzsche said it, that, said it this way in the late 1800s, illustrating through a story of a madman who is running through the marketplace and he's seeking God, right? He's running around asking everybody, where's God, where's God, where's God? And everybody in the marketplace is making fun of him because they've long since decided that God is not real, that he's not something they should be concerned concerned about that he doesn't have any play in society he doesn't have any play in the human life and he responds to their heckling by saying this he says whither is god where is god right (laughs) we don't use that word whither whither is god um he cried i shall tell you we have killed him you and i all of us are his murderers but How have we done this? How were we able to drink up the sea? Who gave us the sponge to to wipe away the entire horizon? What did we do when we unchained this earth from its sun? Whither is it moving now? Away from all suns? Or or, are we not plunging continually backward and sideward and forward and in all directions? Is there any up or down left? I mean, don't you feel that in this society? We don't know which way we're going. We're up and down. We're sideways. We have no idea what we're doing. People are starting to report that they're getting very depressed under this this current climate of anger and vitriol and, and, and disillusionment. Are we not straying as though an infinite, an infinite, as through an infinite nothing? Do we not feel the breath of empty space? Has it not become colder? Is it, is not night and more night coming all on all the while? I can't speak this morning. I'm sorry. Must not lanterns be lit in the morning? It's getting darker and darker and darker for people, right? 
Do we not hear anything yet of the noise of the gravediggers who are burying God? God is dead and we have killed Him. How shall we, the murderers of all murderers, comfort ourselves? What was holiest and mightiest of all that the world has yet owned has bled to death under our knives? Who will wipe this blood off of us? What water is there for us to clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement, what sacred games shall we have to invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not become gods simply to appear worthy of it? So Nietzsche is simply, simply, through story, simply identifying the groupthink of modern humans, of all of us as a society, and the futility of that groupthink as we have unhitched ourselves from the God post, right? And now we float aimlessly on life's ocean with no direct, direction or recourse, and, and it's a place that we will eventually starve or drown. It will break apart. If you've ever read Dostoevsky, I, I, I love reading this stuff, but it's heady stuff, and it's fun stuff to read when, you, when you're really in the mood. But if you're not in the mood, it's kind of boring. But Dostoevsky tried to show this stuff in the negative light that if the existence of God is denied, then, one, uh, then a person lands com- in complete moral relativism, which is really what we're all about in Western society right now. And that means that no act, regardless of how dre- dreadful or how heinous, can be condemned by, that, by any atheist out there. They can't condemn any act, no matter cra- how crazy it is. To live consistently with such a worldview is unthinkable and even impossible. It does not work, right? Hence, atheism, atheism is a destructive lifestyle. It's a destructive thought, thought pattern, and it logically ends in suicide. And his writings illustrate these themes that in Crime and Punishment, which I read when I was much younger. Really good read, though. This young atheist convinced of this moral relativism. This is in Russia, you know, like they were having all these things long before we were, I think. Um, brutally murders this old woman for her treasure, for the, the money found in her apartment. And he convinces himself that he, it's okay, that morals are just a construct of human beings, so therefore I can do anything I want. I can kill this old lady and take her money, and it doesn't matter. And he brutally murders her with an axe. The, and although he knows his presuppositions, he, he, underneath them he shouldn't feel guilty, nevertheless he's consumed with guilt after this act. And he confesses his crime eventually and he gives his life to God. It's a pretty cool story. Now, all this philosophical thought, which seems so irrelevant to anybody in the room, right, boils down to very real outcomes today. And you're feeling the effects of this stuff today. Turn on the news, you feel the effects of this stuff. Hollywood actor Chris Pratt tweets he's going to pray for a colleague and everybody goes nuts. All he said is, I'm going to pray for you. Anybody want to pray for me? And everybody goes crazy. I'm not, I don't know. I really don't know much about Chris Pratt. I just saw that on the news. I was like, what? What in the world? Just let the guy say it. But it's an offense now. It is an offense to say that now. Right? That's the tame example, right? That's the tame example. 
But the violence and the overall distrust and breakdown of our society grows out of this ground of despair in a society which is willingly chosen to deny the existence of God and not to pursue Him any longer. And that's what we're feeling. John Calvin rightly said, the surest source of destruction of men is to obey themselves. So blindly we all rush in the direction of self-love that everyone thinks he has a good reason for exalting himself and despising all others in comparison. We as a society are culpable for the monsters that we produce and the indifferent Christian, maybe more so. Maybe more so. Because what has Jesus commanded us to do? Go and tell the nations of this kingdom of peace. Ask yourself the question, when's the last time you told anybody about Jesus? It's a hard question to ask yourself, right? It's the reason I said last week that evangelism is always the answer, and it's not the, that's not what you want to hear. Evangelism is the answer. Evangelism of myself, telling myself the gospel every day of my life, reminding myself of who I am before God and how I need Him and how He's paid that price for me, but also evangelism of others, bringing this kingdom of peace to other people's hearts so that they can bring it to others. That's why I said the simple implementing of laws doesn't change the root causes of the human condition. It doesn't. It doesn't. One such outcome can be seen in the story of, of a pastor. And he's standing up at this, he's, he's, he's uh, at this liberal think tank of, uh, of theologians, right? And, he's, and uh, all these panelists who, who, he's with all these panelists who no longer uh, regard the scriptures as authoritative at all anymore. And they dismiss uh, script, any scriptural prohibition in, in, the, in the Bible on the grounds that they... They, they say that it... Ugh, I'm sorry, I cannot speak this morning. I've had a long week. I'm just going to stop and pray. I just can't, I can't think. Father, I just bring clarity to my mind right now. Lord, it's good to be quiet. Amen. But so he's sitting in this liberal think tank of all these theologians who have given up on the scriptures, right? And they, they, they say, they dismiss, dismiss any scriptural prohibitions, anything that says you can or can't do this, right? On the grounds that they reflect this, the cultural milieu and in, in, in the time in which they were written, right? So, oh, well, you can't say that that's true for us now because it was written back then in that culture. That's what they're saying. But since that's the case for all of Scripture, right? It was all written in a certain time, in a certain culture. All commands in there. That, so they, they concluded, all the panelists at this thing, concluded that there are no timeless, normative, moral truths in Scripture. Listen to that. But such a view leads to this relativism which makes it impossible, impossible at all, to criticize any of society's moral values. It's just totally impossible. So a pastor stood up in the crowd and he said, wait a minute, I'm a little bit confused. And probably a little bit upset as well. And he said, I'm a pastor and people always come to me and they're asking me if, they've done some, if what they've done is wrong and if they need uh, forgiveness for it. 
And he said, for example, isn't it always wrong to abuse a child? And here's the panelist's uh, answer to that. He, they said, what counts as abuse differs from society to society. So we can't really use the word abuse without tying it to a historical context. Do you hear the lie in that? So do you, do you see how this worldview bleeds out into every real practice in society? We see it through pornography. We see it through uh, school shootings, to the hookup culture, to just simple despair in society across the board. I'm starting, I, I've never, I've never, I'm starting to have conversations with people whose children, people my age whose children are Gosh, they are engaged in such destructive sexual behavior. It is disheartening. I mean, it's more than disheartening. It is frightening. Boys, young boys of 18 years old driving into the city to meet old men that they've found on, on Craigslist. It's crazy that the conversations I as a pastor have. Now you understand a little bit of my angst when I preach these sermons. It comes out of a place of seeing people's lives absolutely, totally destroyed because of the groupthink out there. This has been our struggle ever since. Right? Ever since Adam and Eve, humankind wanting to be its own God, but without the capacity to self-direct and without the, the, the capacity to understand its destination any longer. As a matter of fact, it's obliterated our destination. We don't know where we're going anymore. Without God, individuals in society, society lead themselves to absolute total destruction. Salvation is merely the act of throwing up your arms, throwing up your hands and saying, okay, I admit it, I am lost and I need help from the only person that can help me and that is Jesus Christ. And spiritual formation is simply willing, the willingness to move over, right, to the passenger side of the car and allow Jesus to climb into the driver's seat and throw in a map on your lap and saying, you help me navigate. Not that he doesn't know where he's going. But he wants us to be a part of the process. He wants us to understand the journey. Every twist and turn, every pothole, every resting point, Right? And the hardest thing for us to admit is that we are in charge. That we are not God. Right? Philip Yancey reminded us that the historian for Alcoholics Anonymous titled his work, Not God, because he said that that stands as the most important hurdle an addicted person must surmount. To acknowledge and deepen the soul, not being God. No mastery of manipulation or control at which alcoholics excel can ever overcome the root problem. Rather, the alcoholic must recognize individual helplessness and fall back in the arms of the higher power. First of all, we had to quit playing God, concluding the founders of AA. And then allow God himself to play God in the addict's life, which involves daily, even moment by moment, surrender. If you've ever met a person in an like, addictions program, they are moment by moment people. I didn't drink today, thank the good Lord. Right? 
I didn't do this today. Thank the good Lord. I didn't shoot up today. Thank the good Lord. By God's grace, there go I, right? They have all these little sayings. They're living moment by moment. And literally, I would say that's how we must live. That's how we must learn to live. We, can, we have something to learn from people in uh, these programs. Last week, we said that without God, people have to live in a state of denial of their hopelessness, of our inherent sinful condition. Blaise Pascal posited that knowledge of God without knowledge of man's wretchedness begets pride, right? So you become all like smart about God and all this kind of stuff and you you become really prideful. And knowledge of man's wretchedness without knowledge of of God begets despair, which was hence my comment of David Foster Wallace last week. You know, he was a very smart guy, saw the heart of people that was just like he saw human nature at its worst and I think it really got to him But because he didn't have the answer of Jesus. And then where am I? But knowledge of Jesus Christ furnishes man uh, knowledge of both simultaneously. So you understand who you are and you understand Jesus as, as the answer for that. Right? And that is uh, true spiritual rebirth. That is where hope is found. Right? That is where you are truly reborn. And we want our spiritual leaders to have broken, contrite hearts, right? Like the psalmist, to be solid in their convictions of who Jesus is as as the ultimate answer to their brokenness. And then and only then do they lead out of a position of gracious truth-telling. That's when they tell you the truth and when when they tell it in a hard way sometimes, but they got to get it across because it's that important. It's that tragic. Denial of our condition and need of Jesus stands in our way of becoming what we're truly intended to be. Right? In denial, we're forced to contrive ways to deal with the reality we find ourselves in. And our twisted hearts make up untruths to live by. Romans chapter 1. And with a secular worldview which is divided... Uh, nature and, and the divine, if you have ever read, um, re- if you want to read a great book, and it's like this thin, but it will take you a, as long as a book this thick, Francis Schaeffer's, Schaeffer's Escape from Reason. And in that, he posited that we have put a line between the divine and nature. And anytime you do that, and anytime you set nature free from God, free from the divine, it eats up the divine. It just takes over and throws it out. So hence, Nietzsche, God is dead, right? That's what we've done. So when we have done that, what, what happens is our bodies become nothing but utilitarian things to use for whatever pleasure we deem satisfies its longings. The self is the inevitable, inevitable place to turn and worship when we decide to wor- worship the creator, created instead of the creator. And the physical body becomes only useful in that it's that thing which enables us to satisfy the self, the almighty self. And since this is the route that humankind chooses to pursue, God gives us over to our desires in order that we would learn our great lesson of need. He doesn't stand in our way. Problem of evil, God lets you do it. Because he wants you to learn your need. And most of our obsessions become centered on sex or violence. 
That's what we see in society. Maybe your obsessions are somewhere else. But for the most part, humankind, when they get untethered from God, their, their obsessions become centered on either sex or violence or both. Right? They have the biggest bang for their buck. They, they give you the most feeling. Right? And we see this in our society. Both of those things are just out of proportion, blown out of the proportion, aren't they? And what we find is that when the false is deemed true, and then anything can be true for anyone at any time and anywhere, right? And the only absolute truth any longer is that you, you, you can't say what's true for one person is true for another. That's, that's the big sin. It's moral relativism. Never mind that we're all created by the same Creator in His image together, male and female. And what drives humankind crazy, drives us nuts, is in our pursuit of sex and in our pursuit of violence, neither one of them can ever satisfy us. Neither one. Each has to invent more and more ways to satiate their growing lust. Movies get more and more violent. Movies get more and more sexual. My friend's kids drive down to the city to meet somebody and do horrific things. And all this, this level, all this, the levels of violence and the sexual deviation grow more, more acute and more damaging. Since, since the act of pursuing these things in worship of self only served to deaden our feelings. We, we're pursuing feelings, but it's deadening our feelings. And we have to do more and more and more to feel something again. It's the fruitless pursuit. They are starting to come out with studies. And I'm, but young men are having a hard time performing. We'll say that. Um, in the bedroom with their significant other because they've watched so much pornography. This is ha- all this philosophical stuff has very real implications in your life, right? So in reference to humankind without thought of God, Pascal is also quoted as saying, mankind's condition is characterized by inconstancy and boredom and anxiety, right? So when we're untethered from God, all we feel is this incon- We can't stay on one thing, right? You see that all the time in, in, in our society. We get bored so easy. We have high anxiety. Anxiety levels are growing like crazy in this society. His relations with his fellow men are warped by self-love. Society is founded on mutual deceit. Can't trust anybody. I, I, you listen to any news story. Did, do any of you ever really say, "Yeah, I'm sure they're telling the truth"? No, none of us. We don't believe anybody anymore, do we? We don't. Man's justice is fickle and relative. That is very true. It is fickle and relative. It's not true justice. Most of what we call justice out there is not true justice. It is fickle and it's relative. And it's, there's no fixed standard of value that can be found, right? Despair, uh, despite their predicament, however, most people incredibly refuse to seek an answer or even to think about their dilemma. Instead, they lose themselves in escapisms. But kingdom life in Jesus 
satiates the longings of the soul and the body and puts everything in its proper place under God. No appetite becomes unwieldy. Nothing out of control. Nothing usurps the throne of life under the lordship of Christ. And pleasures become pleasure with a, with a manageable small p as they should be. Paul speaks of this in Ephesians chapter 4, 17-19. He says, So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. Those are strong words, but they're true words, right? They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. They have chosen to, give, to, to turn their backs on God. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality, so sex gets crazy and insane, so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. It's the natural progression in a life which refuses to acknowledge the need of Christ. Self-gratification becomes king, taking out all boundaries, which Romans chapter 1, 28-32 states clearly that because God will not contend with us in this matter, He's not going to stand in our way, He's not going to fight us and fight us and fight us. He says, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind that they would do what ought not to be done. And so we see humankind, instead of asking, why, why would I ever do that? Why would I ever think that way? Instead of doing that in the face of life's choices, which God has deemed so damaging and sinful and hurtful, instead, we ask, why not? Why not? Since we feel, as human beings, we are the Almighty Self. We are invincible. And we think we can get away with anything without any damage on anybody. And the outcome is the continuation of Roman passage, Romans 1 passage, uh, verses 29 through 32. It says, They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. This is a blanket statement over all of society, right? They are full of evil, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death they not only continue to do these very things but also approved those who practice them i if that describes america right now i'm not like some big nationalist you guys know me i'm not but that does i live here i'm a citizen right and it describes us it may you may not be like you know a murderer you may not be out murdering somebody i mean you might be in your heart but this is a blanket, sort of a, a whatever statement about everybody, that the whole of society that gives up on God, right? And then in Ephesians 4, 20-24, Paul reminds us that if, we, if we've given ourselves to Jesus, if we've walked across that threshold with Jesus and given our life to Him as Savior and Lord, right? Then we've exchanged this secular, human-centered worldview of life with its despair and its blatant pride and all its denial and all its falsehood for a worldview which views life through the eyes of Jesus. Through a biblical worldview which has at at its center a kingdom of peace and a king who is peace. And that is Jesus. He says that 
however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in Him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, that old sinful self, right? Which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. Remember, uh, I think it was Jeremiah that said your heart deceives you. Your own heart deceives you, right? To be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. True change from the inside out. And that is spiritual formation coming out of a deep, deep, deep realization of our need for Jesus, right? Put off the old self and put on the new self in Christ. We can only regard such indifference to God in modern society and even in our personal lives at at times as absolutely insane. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. Our condition ought to impel us, impel us to seek to discover whether there is a God in this universe and a solution to our predicament. It should. But people occupy their time and their thoughts with trivialities and distractions so as to avoid the despair and avoid the boredom and avoid the anxiety which inevitably results when all diversions are taken away. Pascal was very aware of what he, we said last week, that man is both great, right? And also very hopelessly depraved at the same time. And he tried to show these two truths to people to shake them out of their comfort and begin to follow Jesus. And he's quoted as saying, what a chimera then is man. What a novelty. What a monster. What chaos. What a subject of contradiction. What a prodigy. See, he goes from down here to up here, right? Judge of all things, yet an imbecile earthworm. Depository of truth, yet a sewer of uncertainty and error. Pride and refuse of the universe. Who shall uh, resolve this tangle? Those are true words. Lauren Isley said, man is the cosmic orphan. Man is the cosmic orphan, the only creature in the universe who asks why. All the other animals out there have instincts to guide them, but man's learned to ask questions. Sorry, my thing broke. I think it actually broke. I'm going to have to go to that. Yeah, I'll hold it. Thanks. Uh, Where was I? So we've learned to ask why. All other animals in the universe have had this, they have this instinct to guide them. But man's learned to ask these questions. Questions of life, questions of himself, questions of ontology. Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? Right? And since the Enlightenment, when modern man threw off the shackles of religion, he's tried to answer these questions without reference to God, to be untethered from that. Right? But the answers which have come back aren't at all promising for us. They're not. Rather, they are dark and terrible answers. See, the world out there has said to us, you are an accidental byproduct of nature, a result of matter plus time and plus chance. There's no reason for your existence 
and all you face is death. That's what the world says to you, right? Cosmic orphan. That's what uh, Jack Miller used to say to his wife. He wrote the Sonship Materials. Great course if you ever want to go through it. But he would say to his wife when she was acting like she didn't have a heavenly father, he would say, you act as if you're a spiritual orphan, Right? But Jesus said to us in John 14, 16 through 19, when talking about the Holy Spirit as Christ's gift to us, he said, I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The spirit of truth, the world can't accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be with you, be in you. I won't leave you as orphans. I will come to you before long. The world won't see me anymore, but you will see me because I live. You will also live. That's hopeful. Modern man thought when he'd gotten rid of God that he had freed himself from all, that, all, all the things that repressed him or stifled him and all that kind of stuff. But instead, he discovered in killing God, he had only succeeded in orphaning himself. Since if there is no God, man's life becomes absurd. Absolutely absurd. It, it is a natural order of things. I Test my words. Read. Think it is what happens. But the great truth the church proclaims to this lost world out there, and we are the ones with the words. We are the only ones with the words, by the way. Are found in Romans 8.15 where it says of the person of Christ, of the person that is in Christ, the spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. In other words, you have been taken in to the family of God. You've been taken in as a son or a daughter into the family of God. And by him, we cry, Abba, Father. Abba is this word that is like this term of endearment between father and son. Abba, Father. Daddy. So what are we saying? Two sermons means it's important. Two sermons means it's important. The worldview that we operate out of, how we think, is important. The thought lines that we adopt and we, we, we generate and we, we go along are important. We don't want to perpetuate an us versus them attitude. That's not what I'm saying. But at the same time, At the very same time, we have to be mature and recognize that those who deny Christ operate out of a vastly different worldview than does the church. The two are mutually exclusive. They have irreconcilable differences. They divorce. They cannot be together. And one has to be wrong and one has to be right. And that's where our choice lies. Which do we believe? Because in the church, we believe that Jesus Christ is the only answer for all the ills of the world, for all the ills of the human heart. So when we talk of our brokenness in church, are we simply talking about our wounds? Like, oh, I'm, I was hurt back then, back here, and I need to be healed. While we still perpetuate this sort of like human-centered worldview, right? Or are we honestly talking about the evil that is within us and our desperate need for Jesus out there? 
Are we pursuing our spiritual formation out of a place of true need and an honest estimation of ourselves? Are we convicted of Christ's lordship in all areas of life that he gets to decide what is good for me and for everybody else and not myself and not my culture? When we can understand true need for Christ and allow him to be Lord of life, then and only then can we be a changing force in our communities. Only then. Otherwise, we're living and we're preaching a false gospel, which is nothing more than a human-centered worldview garbed in Christian robes. Remember, the spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you are King of kings and Lord of lords. We thank you that you are here. We thank you that you took such effort and pain to reveal your word to the world, to communicate to us clearly, and that you have promised your Holy Spirit As we give our lives to you, you've promised your Holy Spirit as an advocate and as a guide throughout this life. We thank you, and especially as we come to the Lord's table this morning, we thank you that you were willing to not only give us all that, but you came and you entered into our reality. You you took on flesh and bone. You walked this earth at, on the, uh, walked life out on this earth with us. And you you taught us, and you loved us, and you cared for us, and you challenged us, and you put us in our, our place sometimes. And then you went to the cross and you died a horrific death, only to rise again three days later to open up the way of reconciliation with God the Father. And we thank you for that. So as we come to this table this morning, we ask that you would remind us of the serious nature of the gospel. And I pray that we would confess our sin and that we would leave it behind before we walk up to this table. We remember that night when those men sat around that table and they took, you took the bread and you broke it and you said, this is my body broken for you. And this is my blood as you lifted the wine shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me every time. Remember me. Remember what I did for you. And so we do that today. And it is a serious matter for us. And we thank you for that. In Christ's name we pray.